Welcome back to Women Blazers. I'm your host, Deanna Witter. This is the 19th episode and the second to last episode of season one. So thank you for joining me and our incredible guests as we share our unique journeys and personal experiences as women leaders in the sports industry. Today, I'm excited to welcome Katie Griggs as my featured guest. Katie is the Vice President and Chief Business Officer for Atlanta United of Major League Soccer. In this episode, you'll hear Katie share her unique journey. Not knowing she would end up in the sports industry, she followed her curiosity and interest in human connection as she blazed a career path that was driven by the power of relationships and her courage to consistently not let fear hold her back from stepping up to each opportunity presented to her. If you choose to believe that you're in a room for a reason and that someone's hired you to do a job for a reason, that empowers you to actually do the job. Right. Right. And do the job bringing your whole self, hopefully. Right. Mm. And bringing the, like, you were hired because of who you are. And that's your background. That's your experiences. But that's also things like gender or sexual orientation or ethnicity or religion. Like, that's just part of being you. Right. Um, and so I've frankly chosen to own it. Um, and not in a I am woman, hear me more kind of way, just in a this is the perspective I have because this is my life. Now, Katie, you attended uh, college at Dartmouth and received a degree in government and international relations. You know, what motivated you to attend an Ivy League school and what was your career goal with this degree? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And it's probably not the answer <laughs> that I should be given, but it was the... You know, it was something where I was really excited about a liberal arts opportunity school and a liberal arts program, mostly because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and so as a result, I liked the idea of going to a school where the focus was more on general education versus really truly immersing yourself in a single path, because for me, I didn't know what path that should be. Um, so that was part of the logic I also then liked <laughs> to speak. So when you married those two, I was fortunate enough to get into Dartmouth, had the opportunity to go there. And ultimately, from a you know, government and international relations standpoint, it really was a continuation of that trend of, I've sort of spent most of my life and most of my career trying to find ways to open doors, mm -hmm. not shut them. And I'm intrigued by human behavior and why people do the things they do. Um, I was pretty sure I didn't want to become a psychologist. And I was really intrigued by how things happen at the macro scale. And so ultimately, sort of exploring those interests. One day I woke up and realized I had an awful lot of uh, coursework <laughs> in government and particularly in international relations and followed that one through um, and followed it through really with a complementary set of coursework that truly was around sort of that same philosophy of exploring yeah. my own interests and figuring out what was that combination of coursework and skills and internships and travel experiences where I could graduate with a hopefully fairly flexible background that would allow me to pursue whatever path it was that I, you know, as I reached my senior year. As you, as you, as you're talking through not knowing what path you wanted to go down. And I think often, um, you know, people, this is where they sort of discover a little bit more about themselves. Like what did you learn about yourself in college and through your college experience? I, I, I think it was less about learning something and more about like yeah. reaffirming things, right? Because I think as you're as you can grow up, and that's as, as true today as it was back when I was 18, 19, 20, 20, 21, 22, right? But it really is, you sort of, I think there's key things that we all know or think we know about ourselves. And it's a continued exploration of, you know, how do those evolve? And so when I was in when I was in college, it really was I've I've always liked surrounding myself with interesting people, right? People who have different thoughts, people who have different backgrounds, people with whom I can have conversations and learn from their perspective. So it's actually a plus if our perspectives don't always line up because I know what I think and I like understanding what other people think and why. And I think that makes me hopefully smarter and I'd like to think <laughs> better person a lot of the times because it gives me the opportunity to really understand where other people are coming from. So you know, I think when you look at all of that, it really was something where I knew when I graduated, I wanted to work yeah. with other people, right? I wanted to work with other people. I wanted to work on a wide array of problems. And again, I, you know, I reached that senior year and I, I mean, I feel somewhat embarrassed because I've always been envious of people <laughs> who knew what they wanted to be when they grew up. And I still didn't. And I, 
was incredibly fortunate to get a um, job as a strategy consultant in New York. As you just mentioned, you know, post-graduation, you launched your career at IBM as a strategy consultant. And then after, what, two years, you then moved into another company, uh, Media and Entertainment Strategies, where you're a senior associate for another two years. How would you describe those two opportunities? And what were your takeaways from the beginning of your career? Yeah, no, I, I think, look, IBM was a fantastic first job. I loved living in New York. I loved working with a bunch of people. They, The way it works, they hired a class, so I wasn't the only new hire. There were, I don't know, probably in New York, 20 or so of us, all who have graduated from schools around the country coming together. And that was That's that cool. was a fun yeah. experience, right? Moving to a new city with a bunch of new people who, again, come back to the common theme, had had different perspectives and life experiences. And we all enjoyed working together and getting to know each other. Media and entertainment strategies, I think, is what will be the starting point of a trend you'll probably hear throughout this, which is serendipity. I uh, literally was, I was not looking for another job. I was flying home for Christmas one year. I sat next to a woman and somehow ended up striking up a conversation with her, which <laughs> I don't do on airplanes as general protocol. I, I, I don't know what happened there. But in any case, I landed and I somehow had a job offer, which struck me as very <laughs> odd because I just talked to this woman and I didn't have any clue if her business was real or if the job offer was real. And I remember going home and laughing about it with my dad who said, well, what did she say she do does? And I was like, well, she works with a lot of media companies and this was early to mid 2000s. So predominantly print media or broadcast media and helps them figure out what do they do with this internet thing, right? How do they leverage that to get their content out there, reach new audiences, whatever. And dad's like, does that sound interesting? Like, <laughs> yeah, sounds really interesting, actually. He's like, well, then why wouldn't you actually look into this? And I was like, that's a fair question, dad. Um, so I did a little bit of digging, did a little bit of homework and finally got up the nerve to shoot an email to the random lady I sat next to on a plane <laughs> who offered me a job saying, hey, I don't know if you were serious, but I'd be interested in talking. And um, coming full circle, not only was she serious in appropriate form, I started on April Fool's <laughs> Day. So that was my second opportunity. But again, it was <clears throat> it was serendipity meets the opportunity to continue mm. to learn. And for me, like I, you know, I'm really interested in media because media is a good way in which you could impact humans and you could really see consumer behavior come to life through their consumption patterns and things along those lines. And as a believe it or not, millennial. <laughs> I was looking at it and I was online all the time. And so for me, this was a really natural fit. And so it was great. I spent two years traveling all over the place, working, you know, both domestically and internationally with a bunch of different organizations and doing a lot of focus groups and the like. And it was fantastic because, you know, I'm, I've been very fortunate in my life and, you know, my parents are, my parents are overeducated. I went down and uh, you know, really spent a lot of time and energy mm -hmm. on my education. And I had my worldview and my view sort of perspective. And a lot of the people that I knew sort of, again, no matter how diverse their perspective, a lot of them had backgrounds yeah. similar to mine. And the coolest part of traveling all over the US and all over um, Europe as well was really getting to realize that my background wasn't normal. And I did not reflect the general public. Like in the fact that sort of the idea of there being a general public is a complete <laughs> misnomer, right? There's so many people who have so many different backgrounds, perspectives, life experiences, mm -hmm. what have you, that it's, you know, it really was sort of the uh, culmination, I think, of a lot of that, the sort of academic work I'd done around international relations, which was truly going out and seeing what do people think and why, and realizing that just because I thought about things a certain way doesn't mean that that actually reflects the way some, all, or even most people yeah. thought about something. Um, so it was a really, really cool experience. I think it's incredible that that, that experience <clears throat> and that opportunity it was afforded all started with talking to the lady on the airplane. <laughs> and so, uh, it's, yes, I, apparently, apparently yes, you have to do more of that, just, but I know it's tempting to put on headphones. Well, this is power and connection <laughs> and just, you know, and talking to individuals, you never know you know, somebody's situation or what they have. And I love that you had the courage and the mo and also just the, the encouragement from your father to explore it because it sounds like what a, what an incredible opportunity that was for you to go through that discovery process, have those experiences. You talked about education just being really important to you. So after media and entertainment um, strategies and, and being with this company for two years, you decided to go back to Dartmouth and pursue and obtain your business degree um, in 2007. So, you know, after those experiences, what motivated you to go back to business school? 
And um, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. And any any advice that you would have for people that are considering the same thing? Yeah, I mean, I I loved what I was doing, but I I was pretty sure it wasn't sort of exactly what I was doing with media and entertainment strategies. I didn't think that that was my personal end game in terms of exactly where I wanted to end up. There were a lot of elements I really enjoyed about it. Um, I also, it afforded me the opportunity to have worked for a company like IBM, which has tens, if not hundreds of thousands of employees at that point. And then I went to a company that had five, right? So I got to experience a lot of different things and different experiences. But, um, you know, I loved the people, I loved our clients, but I was pretty sure that there was something past that. And again, back to the common theme. I have no <laughs> idea what it was. So uh, what in doubt, education. So again, I was incredibly fortunate. Uh, to get into the Tech School of Business at Dartmouth. And for me, it was a sort of true chance to spend two years because I went full time um, and really think about, all right, what were the common themes of all of the things that I had truly enjoyed from the people I worked with to the environments in which I did them to the way in which I did them to truly what were those subject matters that you know I would wake up and be legitimately excited about. And so I spent two years there. And it was probably about halfway through my first year where I really started honing in on the -hmm. industry of sports. Um, And when I first started thinking about it, um, it, I really didn't know what that meant. Right. I, I've I've been a sports fan all of my life. I've been, you know, played sports my entire life, but in terms of what it meant to work in sports, um, you know, I, sort of knew the general stuff. Like I knew there were obviously teams, (laughs) there were leagues, there were media companies, but you know, it really, I did sort of a true deep dive. I think it's sort of the second six month period of my first year of business school. I spoke to over a hundred different people, just informational interviews, literally anyone who would talk to me ranging from like, I remember I spoke to a woman who had just graduated from Dartmouth a year earlier and was a executive assistant over at the NFL to then commissioners live at the SEC. Like it ran the gamut, <laughs> literally anyone truly trying to figure out what was the industry, you know, and then as I got closer and closer to figuring out, you know, what I wanted to do within it, what was my yeah. story, right? Because it's, and you, I'm sure you, yeah. you've experienced this as well. It's challenging to break into the sports industry, period. And it's doubly hard to try to do it at anything other than entry level. And uh, courtesy of the level of student loan, <laughs> I thought entry level wasn't something that was going to be an option for me. Um, uh, I didn't have to be paid a lot, but I, I had to sort of, you know, I was coming in at that point with a bunch of years of work experience and MBA and really needed to figure out a way to, um, figure out if it would even be possible for me to come in at a level that wasn't sort of, um, yeah. entry level. So, you know, and that was something where, again, the aha moment for me that I probably should have known by then, but I didn't was it wasn't about me. Right. Like when I was trying to figure out my story was the story wasn't about me. The story is about the people I was talking to. Right. Because whenever you're hiring for a job, you're hiring someone to solve a problem for you. You're hiring to fill a gap. Right. And I needed to figure out it was all well and good to say, oh, well, I want to go and work in corporate partnerships for the NFL. Well, what on earth about my background would lead them to think that I was the right person to do it? It's not necessarily that I wasn't smart enough or couldn't have figured it out, but I would have to have a really good story. And I think ultimately where I came down to as I had all of these conversations and learned very quickly not to say that I was a fan, <laughs> um, I really honed in on the fact that I knew a lot about consumer behavior um, and I knew a lot about the world of media and how you could leverage content and ha- how fans would fans and or consumers would engage with content across different technologies and platforms. Um, so with that in mind, I got... Um, sort of started realizing that my best chance of success likely was going to be in that media space. So by the time I was fortunate enough to get an internship, my first year working at Octagon um, and really doing a lot of business development work for them. Um, But after I graduated, sort of my target at that point in time was focused on probably the media end of sports, just recognizing that that's where you know, my background likely was going to be the strongest. That's, um, that's really great advice. And I I love, I love your story and your discovery process there, because what you said there was so important and something we really haven't touched a a lot on in in the podcast is about um, your story. And you're absolutely right. When you break into sports, um, it's extremely hard to break into. And what differentiates you from everybody else who's trying to break in and you watching 
um, ESPN every week and, <laughs> you know, being a fan <laughs> of certain players and teams um, is not the breakthrough moment. You know, we're all fans of the game. What is your why? What is your story? What is it that differentiates you and why this organization would be greatly valued or better because you were in it? And it's like, I, I think that's a really strong thing. And if you're listening, I would, I would, I would uh, challenge you to consider that for yourself. Can you answer those questions? So I think when I talk about my, when I talk about stories and when I'm advising other people on how to work on theirs, stories can be modified, right? And I'm not talking about you're making things up, but you talk, figure out what are those different elements of your, you know, personality, your background, your experiences, your passions. And you know what? Most of us are multifaceted humans, yeah. right? And so I thought I had the strongest story in the world of media, but that's being said, you know, if I was, if there was a job opportunity, I'm making it up at the NFL league offices, right? It was finding those elements of my story that I thought would best tie into that particular role. So if, you know, think at that point, then it was, it was looking at things like, oh, well, if they have a corporate partnership group or corporate partnership opening, it was like, okay, well, I've spent a lot of time working with different brands on how do they engage with consumers. Now, granted, my platform was predominantly Mm -hmm. media, but I do understand how brands work, what they're looking for and what those goals are. And so again, it was tweaking the experience that I did have because all of us, all we have is our own experience, right? Unless we're making things up and I would not recommend that to anyone. (laughs) So all you have is, all you have is your own experience. So it really is about picking and choosing what are those components that are going to be most salient to that role? And so for me, it's, you know, I didn't have this luxury at that point, but as my career has progressed, you know, I have a resume that's probably four or five pages long that I would never send to anyone. But the reason it's that long is if I ever needed it, and I haven't needed it in a while, (laughs) thankfully, but if I ever needed it, you know, there are different bullets and different sort of things that I've done over my career that I would emphasize depending on the different roles. So it wouldn't be just a, here's my resume. I've sent it in. Hopefully they like it. It would be a, all right, I've done a lot of stuff. All of us have done so much more stuff than we Uh can put on our resumes, right? But it's curating that list and saying, okay, based on what this particular job says that they're looking for, here are the X number of bullets that I think best show why I'm a good fit, right? But it's way easier for me, at least, to have a super long one where I can pick and choose and try to remember all of those things and modify on a one-off basis, or at least it has. No, that's, that's, a, that's really great advice. I, I love that. And I, I love that you, you <laughs> built out your resume and then curating it for the position and the opportunity so it connects um, with, the, with that organization makes complete sense. I think that's a great takeaway for, for myself even and for everybody. <laughs> so you mentioned after graduating, graduating um, in 2009, um, it was a hard year, a hard time to get into the industry. And obviously, I think a lot of people today who are coming out of college are probably experiencing something similar with COVID and where our industry is, especially if you're trying to break into sports. Um, you know, you, you actually made a couple moves before landing an incredible opportunity with Turner Sports in 2010. How would you describe 2009 and, you know, what was challenging and rewarding about that year for you? Well, the one word I'd use is probably <laughs> stressful. Um, but, with that, but with that being said, um, you know, I, I think it it's, it was a really, in retrospect anyway, it was a really cool year. So I graduated without a job, which for me was the scariest thing possible, especially because coming out of an MBA program, almost all of my colleagues, including my then husband, or not now husband, <laughs> then husband as well, but including my husband who also, who had already landed an opportunity here in Atlanta. So I knew that I not only had to find a job, but had to find a job <laughs> in Atlanta. Um, and so that was, I mean, it was, incredibly stressful. And I'm someone who takes a lot of pride in my work ethic and pride in sort of what I do. And so to graduate without a job, you know, not only was scary and stressful, but also felt a little bit like a failure. But the reality is sports don't hire the same way that, you know, a lot of those firms that are recruiting on campus do, right? Like sports, in some, in some instances, particularly at the entry level, they do actually hire some sort of some degree of classes, um, people who are more recent graduates, but in a lot of instances, it truly is need-based. And especially if you're coming in at anything other than entry level, it's a company has a need. And so if I had found the perfect job in January of my second year, but wasn't graduating till June, even if they wanted me, I wasn't going to be able to take it and they weren't going right. to wait six months. So, you know, part of it was just sort of building a little bit of a steel stomach and learning that sort of 
accepting that I would not be unemployed for my entire <laughs> life. <laughs> but then ultimately it was, um, you know, it was sort of <laughs> the joy of saying yes. Right. And what I mean by that is I remember since I didn't have a job, I would friend of Mars had gotten married in Mexico. And I was like, okay, I'm running a car in LA and I'm just going to drive up <laughs> to California because I have nothing better to do. And I might as well do this for a little while while I can. And I remember being on the beach. I don't even know where, somewhere um, north of, somewhere north of LA, um, but south of San Francisco. And I got a phone call from a classmate and she had interned at Camelback the year before and had some good relationships there. And she's like, Hey, they called me. They actually have this consulting project. They need someone to help them with for a few months. Um, like I can't do it, but I thought you might be a great fit for it. Would you like to talk to them? And they were based in Petaluma, California, which as it turns out is in the middle of Sonoma <laughs> County. So not a bad place to be. I had nothing better to do at that point. And so I yeah. said, sure. <laughs> so literally I took my car I took my little road trip. And instead of stopping at various places, I stopped in Petaluma, California, and I was fortunate enough for them to decide to take me on to work on that project. And so I stayed there for a few months. Um, and then I got a phone call back from Octagon where I'd worked previously. Um, they were rolling something out. They needed help for a few months and they knew that I was looking in Atlanta, but would I be interested in, you know, working to lead a mobile marketing tour for one of their partners for several months? Um, and again, I didn't have anything else I was doing at that point. I was still applying for jobs, but I didn't have anything solid. And, so decided to say, you know, why not? And so I did that for a few months. And um, so at that point, I think I lived in Portland, Oregon. So I lived in Petaluma for two or three months. And I lived in Portland, Oregon for another month or two. And I lived in Chicago for another month or two. It was completely <laughs> bizarre. Um, until actually, ultimately, right around, right around Christmas that year, I finally moved to Atlanta. Um, but moved to Atlanta, actually, with a job at Turner. And the way that came about, I had applied for a role at some point, probably over the summer, um, had talked to the recruiter, thought, thought it had gone great, felt really, really good about it. I'm like, oh, thank God, I'm finally going to have a full-time job. Oh, I didn't get it. <clears throat> I was devastated. But it was interesting because all of a sudden, I remember probably while I was living in Chicago in end of November, which meant it was very cold for a girl from North Carolina, um, it, I, my phone rang and it was the recruiter from Turner. And she said, hey you know, really enjoyed our conversation. That role wasn't the right fit, but we're going to have one opening up in the next week or two. It's not even posted yet, but I think you'd be awesome for it. If I send you a description, take a look. And if you'd be interested, I'll put you in touch with a hiring manager and we'll take it from there. So she did, and it looked pretty interesting. And, you know, fast forward and around Christmas, I had a job offer and I started about a month later. So it, you know, I think that is something where even when, even when you yeah. get a no, maintaining those good relationships, right? And checking in and just saying, you know, hey, I've been working on this and just maintaining that dialogue. You never know what's going to happen. Um, and you never know, like, even if one job isn't the right fit, you know, that may just be because it wasn't the right fit, but it doesn't mean that you aren't the right person for that company or that there couldn't be something down the road. So I think it is something where the core of my entire career at this point really has been relationship-based. Yes. Right. And treating every single human from the lady, the random lady <laughs> next to you on an airplane to your classmates, to, um, you know, recruiters for companies, um, treating every single one of them like they're a fantastic, wonderful human who deserves your attention and care because they do. All of us do. Um, but it really is something where that's actually paid huge dividends for me in terms and I think every single job I've gotten probably since that first one at IBM has in some way shape or form tied to a personal relationship um, versus just a cold yes I mean there's so much power in those relationships and those connections and obviously your career path is proof of that um, while at Turner Sports um, as you mentioned so you were the senior manager of strategy and business development what were some of the, what were your responsibilities in that role sure so Coming off of the background in the media work that I'd done prior, um, sort of initially my focus was primarily on cross-platform content strategy. So your NBA is a huge partner of Turner's then and now. It was, all right, well, how do we leverage all of the assets that we have from the NBA and put, you know, leverage them on social media versus leverage them on mobile versus on our website versus on television? Um, we They, right as I joined, they signed um, 
mar- deal with uh, the NCAA for a March Madness. So that was a massive project where, again, it started out as more of that cross-platform content strategy, but they then figured out that they actually needed someone to help project manage all of the different um, production requirements with CBS, which if you look at my background, there's literally nothing <laughs> in it that says this person would be good at doing that. But they needed someone to do it, and I volunteered <laughs> to do it, and apparently didn't do a terrible job, and thus commenced my career over there as whatever my title was. It should have just been manager or senior manager or director or senior director of yeah. special projects. Um, and so I got the growth bug, and that was um, ultimately their strategies changed at Turner, and so they decided to wind up wave down. Um, but that was really sort of the start <laughs> of my next. <laughs> and adventure. is that when you went on to Turner Broadcasting? Uh, so yeah, I was a, so I actually at that point was given the opportunity to work on a strategic project spanning the whole portfolio since I had started in sports and then had done this biz- worked on this business that really touched everything. There was then a strategy project um, across the whole portfolio of businesses that they pulled me into, which was fascinating because I truly got to get under the covers and see how a massive media company comes yeah. together for, as a business, um, which was really, really cool. Um, but ultimately it, again, I got in the growth bug. I knew that that, you know, I'd had, I had an amazing run at Turner. I loved the people I worked with. It's a great, great organization. Um, but it was sort of similar as uh, where I had found myself at media and entertainment strategies several years earlier, which was, I was ready for yeah. a new challenge, right? This was something where, um, you know, I wanted to continue to grow, continue to evolve and didn't see an opportunity or the right opportunity for, to do that at Turner at that point. So um, made the decision to make the leap. Um, and that was ultimately when I ended up at Future. You leave, to your point, and you become the SVP, of, um, SVP general manager at Future Sport and Entertainment. What is FS? F-S-E-N-E. That's yeah. a twister. F-S-N-E. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just called it Futures. futures. Gotcha. There you go. Stumbling <laughs> over it. We'll make it easy. We'll make it easy for you. Um, no, so Futures Futures is interesting. So um, it actually goes back to the relationship. It goes all the way back. Futures is a business that is, is um, a sister agency to oh, Octagon, okay. right? So I had worked at Octagon. My internship, um, while getting my business degree, I'd worked for them briefly. Thereafter, I had stayed in touch with their president the whole time because he's a great guy. He's he was and <laughs> is a great guy. Um, and so when I knew I was looking for Turner, I mean, I had such a great experience there. I was like, okay, well, if there's the right role, I'd love to go back. I just, there hadn't been the right role prior. So I saw something on their website called Futures, which made no sense to me because this was Octagon, <laughs> but whatever. And I was reading through it and Futures was a agency that was focused on um, global media analytics and sponsorship valuations. I was like, and media driven sponsorship valuations. I was like, well, I know a lot about both of those things. So this sounds like it could be a good fit. So I made a phone call and it was um, basically the role was, I thought the role was leading their US offices. As it turned out, the role was actually launching their US offices. (laughs) There are exactly zero employees and zero clients. And um, the, so the agency was based out of London. They had a, another office in Sydney and um, were really at that point, they had uh, the London office had signed a deal with the NFL and clearly the US and America's overall is a very large media and sports market. And so the idea was, well, this is silly. We should actually have a presence in North America. So, so I was talking to them about that. And the very first question that um uh, John Shea, who's the president of Octagon, asked me, he's like, well, Katie, he's like, there are no clients. So this is going to be a sales <laughs> job because you have to get clients. Have you ever done sales before? And I was like, no, but I'm pretty sure I can figure it out, um, which was incredibly flip and probably ridiculously, uh, ridiculously overly self-confident. <laughs> but I did. A, I mean, he had faith in me, and like, I, like, which was incredible. He had faith in me and um, decided to give me a shot. And so... I did. And sales is terrifying. So I'm very impressed by what you do on a day in day out basis. Um, But, you know, I figured it out, right? Because ultimately, sales, or at least this was my experience, I'm curious on your perspective, but from my from my experience, sales is no different than anything else. It's relationship driven. It's understanding what someone's hoping to achieve or what a business goals are, knowing what you have to offer, and hopefully finding a solution that you know, where what you have to offer is really neatly meeting the needs of that client. Like, 
it, it wasn't right. rocket science, right? But it was being really thoughtful and putting yourself first in the shoes of whoever it was I was speaking to. And candidly, a lot of times I'm like, you know what? I don't think we're the right thing for you, <laughs> which may have been limiting, but you know what? It actually did mean that, um, you know, I had, was incredibly fortunate. I launched it. I hired a great team. Um, we had a bunch of really good clients. And, you know, I think the thing I'm most proud of over the time at that business is we had 100% client retention. So every single time a deal came up, they wow. resigned, which, you know, especially for a new business, because um, we weren't always perfect, because no one's always perfect. Um, but was that was that was that for me was the KPI that I yeah. cared most about, right? And it wasn't just from a revenue retention standpoint, it truly was because it means that we're taking care of them and that we're actually, we're delivering successfully on meeting the needs of their business, which is what we committed to upfront. Yeah, that sounds like an incredible experience. And I'm sure this is, this for you is such a huge opportunity um, to test your skills, your confidence um, and see what you're capable of. Was it, was it, a, did you feel like it was one of those moments that, that was a pivotal moment of where you are today? Uh, well, without a doubt, without a doubt, because I remember I would go, go for sort of my initial conversations with companies and I'd be in a meeting with a senior executive at some really fancy sports organization or um, some amazing, amazing brand that all of us have heard of who works closely in sport. I, I would be having a panic attack, panic attack in like the back room. <laughs> I was so nervous because I, I knew that I didn't know what I was doing and I was just waiting until someone else would figure it out. Um, but you know, it, it, it was something where it's, I think it was a sort of a, for lack of a better term, a put yeah. up or shut up, right? I had said that I thought I could figure it out. And I had, that means that sometimes, you know what? You're going to yeah. stumble. You're not, you know, I, I, Lord knows I did not hit every single thing out of the park, right? But I got more comfortable and I tried to learn from what didn't work as much as I learned from the things that did. Um, and I do think from a self-confidence standpoint and the ability to stand in front of a room and speak hopefully relatively intelligently, um, you know, I would definitely not have been nearly um, as comfortable in the leadership roles that I've had the opportunity to serve in since um, if I hadn't had that yeah. experience. It, it's interesting, too, because as as we're talking, you're describing this experience of just stepping up to this moment that you don't know if you could do it, but you believed in yourself. And because you came forward with that belief, you know, um, that leader believed in you as well, gave you that chance. And so often, um, we hear these stories about women and their statistics that women, you know, won't go for a position if they don't have like 80 to 90% of the job description. And, but it comes yeah. down to believing that you have the capabilities of growing into a role, learning the aspects of the, of the, the, the parts of the job description that maybe you haven't done yet. Are you capable of growing and learning that, that area? Are you excited and curious about learning it? Um, and how do you sort of find yourself not holding yourself and reading that and get scared, but yet be excited about the opportunity and go forward past those fears. Um, it's such a mental, you know, mental war with yourself. And it's, it's super totally. exciting to hear that you did that and just the impact it had um, and the growth that you had by doing that is, is very inspiring. Well, I think it, it's sort of, it's sort of a little bit like we talked about the story yeah. earlier, right? Like from my standpoint, when I'm, when I, when I was looking at jobs at points when I've been, potentially considering alternatives or when I'm advising other people, I look at, I look at things as like a three-legged stool, right? Like if I'm looking at a, the next opportunity, realistically, I probably should have two of those legs pretty solid in terms of like some <laughs> of the core requirements of that job. Like, because otherwise that's not necessarily setting yourself up for success, but I always want there to be one thing that's, and one reasonably needy mm -hmm. thing that's new, that I'd need to learn, right? And the reason behind that, and I, and I, frankly, when I'm looking at candidates, that's sort of the framework I use for that as well. I don't necessarily want someone who has done every single thing on my list because chances are they're going to outgrow the role right. really quickly, right? And that's something where, you know, I, the same way I like watching businesses grow, I like watching people grow, right? And I think that it's developing, developing people and helping them figure out, okay, build those skill sets and you know, hopefully you can keep as many great people as you possibly can. But the reality is if the right person for that person is they find a fantastic opportunity elsewhere, that's great, right? That's success from a management standpoint. So I really do look at it as, all right, you got to be willing to have one of those legs of the stool be something that you're yes. scared of, right? Something that you haven't done. Now, I wouldn't necessarily for someone like me, 
I am not very creative. If you asked me to draw a picture or design something, <laughs> it would be terrible. So for me, if the one leg of the stool I didn't have was design, it's probably not going to work right. anyway. But, you know, there are, when there's certain things where it's like, okay, I can at least sort of tell a story as to this is something that, you know, I've done elements of this, right? Or I've worked on parts of this and I have some sort of foundation that I think I can build upon. Like, then that's the right opportunity. Yes, yes, I love that. In 2017, you actually leave Futures and um, you join Atlanta United FC. You're, you're now going into the sports, like, team world um, that I live I know. In. Yeah. So, you know, and you now serve <laughs> as the um, VP and um, Chief Business Officer. What inspired this move and what have you loved about the impact you've made um, at Atlanta? Well, again, I I was actively not working <laughs> on this job because I I loved what I did at Futures. I had built a great team. We had fantastic clients. I was I'd finally gotten to that point where I actually felt like I knew yeah. what I was doing, which is kind of a good feeling. Um, and I got a phone call, and again, I mentioned the role of relationships. Apparently, a bunch of people I know and have worked with over the years suggested to the recruiting company that I might be a good fit, which I never would have raised my hand or looked at it. But when they called me, I was like, all right, I'd be foolish not to at least take the call. So I did. And ultimately, I think what led to me deciding to make the jump. So I, I live in Atlanta. My husband and I have been here at this point almost 11 years. This is our home. This is where we're raising our two kids. And I talked about sort of my desire to make an impact on the lives of people and hopefully bring them happiness. And this is, you know, Atlanta United was in my town, right? So I wouldn't have to move. So it was something where it was in my town, it was impacting the community that was most important to me um, in terms of other folks in and around Atlanta. Um, it was also something where at the point in time when I joined, it was halfway through our first season. So I'd mentioned my desire to grow things and the fact that I really am passionate about coming in and helping things grow and evolve. I probably won't surprise you at this point. I don't do very well when I'm told to do certain things a certain way, because that's the way they've always been done. That's never worked well for me. My parents will testify to that. Um, but um, with, so with this, it really was an opportunity to just come into something where, you know, I think out of the gate, Atlanta United had, I was intrigued by the level of brand awareness and sort of excitement there was in Atlanta, you know, just looking at it from the outside in, I was intrigued by that, especially for a new brand. And in full transparency, especially in the sport of soccer here yeah. in Atlanta, I was I wasn't expecting that type of re reception. Um, another thing that was attractive about it, I I actually had had the opportunity to go to the first match ever just as a fan. Um, and Atlanta's a cool town. I love Atlanta. This this is probably <laughs> I love Atlanta. Atlanta's a really cool town um, in that it's growing rapidly and really diverse. Right, people are coming here from all over the world. There are lots of different backgrounds. Um, but with that being said you don't necessarily come across all of that in one place mm -hmm. very often. Um, and I remember I walked maybe like half a mile um, because that first match Mercedes-Benz <laughs> Stadium wasn't even launched yet. We were playing at Georgia Tech at Bobby Dodd Stadium. Um, and I walked, parked like half, half a mile away and walked over towards the stadium. And I passed some tailgating lots. And first of all, I was like tailgating for soccer. It's yeah. weird, <laughs> but cool. Which um, is intriguing. But most importantly, well, the two things that jumped out at me, one, everyone had gear. I didn't know how that was possible because it was their first match ever, but everyone had gear already, which was cool. But it was also, I looked around and, you know, people were black, white, speaking English, speaking Spanish, old, young, and everyone seemed excited about the same mm -hmm. thing, right? Which was this club. And that was just, I mean, it sounds somewhat cheesy, but that was so cool. Like that was like, that was the Atlanta that I loved and the Atlanta that I frankly didn't feel I got to see enough of. So that was really attractive. Um, you know, our president, Darren Eels is really smart, really good human. Um, so the idea of working from him, he was someone I felt I could actually learn from and grow. Um, and then it also comes down to our owner. Like we're incredibly fortunate to have Arthur Blake as our owner. He is not only a tremendous businessman, but also just a really solid human. Um, and so it really was, if any one of those things hadn't been in place, like the, who I work with matters a lot to me, but you know, Darren and the rest of the team I met. I felt comfortable with the idea of working sort of with a with and for an owner like Arthur was truly compelling in terms of both a 
you know, reputational value system, as well as obviously, I mean, he's a phenomenal entrepreneur. Um, so that was compelling. And it was also in my city and a growth opportunity. Yeah. When I put all of that together, no, like as much as I loved futures and what, what we were doing there, I mean, I sort of looked at, I remember I cried when I told my <laughs> boss I was leaving and he told me I wasn't supposed to be the one crying at that moment. But when I looked at the opportunity, it truly was one of those things where I sort of was asking myself the question, fast forward five years or 10 years, you know, I took this job, I could fail. I'd never done half of the stuff in this job description. Um, I'd never worked for a team before, but my worst case scenario is I came in and I failed, yeah. which is scary and terrible. <laughs> and I definitely didn't want to do that, but that was my downside risk. Best case was this was a tremendous, truly almost once in a lifetime top opportunity because you don't have that confluence of factors coming right. together. Like that just doesn't happen, especially not at this scale. Um, and so I sort of decided that if I, looked at it in retrospect, five years, 10 years down the road, I thought there was a higher risk that I would regret having not taken mm -hmm. it than the regret having taken it. And so ultimately, that was a decision I sort of made the jump. But that was probably even more so than futures where um, clearly there were elements of that job that I didn't know. This one was this was one that was really scary yeah. to me when I took it because I knew there were just going to be so many new things that I'd have to figure out. And I was they were taking a bet on me that I could figure it out. And so I decided that I'd probably need to make the same. Bet yeah. It's, it sounds like a, a double bet. You you now work obviously with a, a sports team and a sports team franchise in, in that workspace. You know, what are the differences um, have you noticed in now being with a sports team? Um, what's the differences of working for a team versus working in some of those other settings you worked in, um, in your previous experiences? Um, I think there, there are a lot, honestly. Um, the you're never off <laughs> right and I don't mean that as a scary thing and it's sort of from more of an intellectual yes. thing right like there are I mean we play nights we play weekends I mean we're in our off season right now but with that being said like there's so much planning to be done for next year that there's and because we're a very consumer facing brand all clubs are because we're so consumer facing there's constant media they're constant and sometimes that media I'm talking about actual sort of traditional media, but sometimes it's just social media and fans and chatters or your players doing something. So there are things that are moving around literally 24 seven. And I don't think I fully appreciated <laughs> that at the time when I took the role. Um, so that was, that was something that was, again, both depending on the day, sometimes really exhilarating and exciting and sometimes a little overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that the cool, the, the really cool thing does tie back to what I mentioned earlier, which is I do get to work on something that like people are passionate right. about, like intrinsically passionate about, you know, if we win, it's a good day for people. <laughs> if we lose, people are pissed and in a bad mood. Oh. Ooh, you know, it's like, that's something where it's one of those things where just, I think the power, this is where the power of sport truly comes in. And if you're at that team level, I think that's the sort of, you're the closest to the fire, if you yes. will. Right. It's the idea of, you know, you have people who, incredibly passionate about these brands are passionate about these clubs and that's a privilege and a challenge mm -hmm. right because you know the, the nature of sports is you know you do everything possible to win but sometimes you don't right even the best teams yeah sometimes don't win right and with that being said I think it is something where having the privilege and the opportunity to see the impact of a lot of the work that my team does on the city of Atlanta and, you know, the way it resonates with people and the way that, you know, our sport does bring so many people of so many different backgrounds together at a time when, I mean, without delving into yeah. anything, I don't want to talk about <laughs> you don't either. Like that's not always the case right. right now. Right. And so it's really exciting to have something where people can come together with a commonality of purpose, regardless of their background. And the fact that my team and I have the privilege of helping facilitate that is is just really yes cool. it is and it's extremely exciting and all of that requires many hours of our time and as you described <laughs> like you never turn it off because you almost live eat you know the every day because there's so many opportunities there's so many ideas that have, that are um you can explore that it, it really sucks you in and it becomes a lifestyle you know the job in your personal life just sort of intertwined um in a way that's really hard to describe um, and so you and I both are mothers, um, 
and we, t- and we talk about lifestyle, like how would you describe your lifestyle in this environment? And, you know, and how do you manage the days, the weeks um, to make your business and your personal life kind of work for you and your family? Depending on the day, the answers would be chaotic and poorly. Um, no, I mean, look, it's, I think, I think you nailed it. It, it is a lifestyle. And I think there's certain, there's certain elements. So I have two young kids. My son just turned five. My daughter's um, 16 Aww, months old. Yeah. Um, so I actually, I took three months maternity leave in the middle of our season last year. Right. And I think that that's something where I give tremendous credit to our organization because it sounds like a, well, obviously <laughs> you have the baby, you're taking right. three months. You know, that's, that's a real, that was a real thing, right? And the, the, having that, having the support of the organization, particularly as there, frankly, historically haven't been a lot of senior female leaders in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think that was something where it was very, very important to me, not only to take my maternity leave, but to try to respect it. Um, I am personality wise, someone who is all in all the time. But what I didn't want is for someone to think, oh, well, Katie's actually doing work during her maternity leave. So if I want to be successful here, that's what I Right. Right. Because that's not correct. Right. That shouldn't be correct. And so, you know, I'm very cognizant of that role that I have in terms of trying to set an example for ways in which people can sort of have family, have the job, all of those other things. But it's hard. Um, You know, it's hard. I try to, you know, I set personal boundaries where from 6.30 to 8 every night, I try to be very, very intentional about leaving my phone in another room and just spending that time with my kids because that is the bulk of the time I get with my kids during the week a lot yeah. of the time is that and over breakfast when I'm ready in the morning. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, when we have matches, um, you know, whenever possible, uh, my family comes to the matches, like, so they get to take advantage of that. And my, my little boy will be running around on the pitch after matches and he thinks it's the best <laughs> thing ever. Right. So I think it is something where it's how do you how do you include your family Mm -hmm. where, when and how appropriate. Right. How do you make sure that you sort of set your own personal boundaries in terms of, you know, what is and isn't okay? Because we talked about this. This job can be all all. Yes. And I don't I don't believe in work life balance as a you know single point of time. I've never been balanced, but I do look at work life balances over time. I should be. Yeah. Right. There are going to be times where. You know what? If when you know when we were making a run up to MLS Cup in 2018, I didn't see my family for like two weeks. I just didn't. I was working 18 plus hours a day trying to get everything ready. But I tried to find time on the back end where I just turned mm-hmm. off, right, and really reinvested into my family, reinvested into myself, frankly. Um, and so I really think that that's the way you have to look at it. Is it's not a it's not a sort of single point in time. Oh, great. Look at me. I'm <laughs> But it is looking at it sort of over the course of a week, a month, a year, however, sort of however you view it, figuring out what is that level of balance and what are those priorities and how do you make them work? So overall, you're balanced in the collective. Yes. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And in, in, um, I, I think that's a great perspective. And thank you for sharing. You know, um, yeah, for me, I, I think this concept of work-life balance, I, you know, I've been trying to throw it out the window ever since I I started this and launched this podcast that we never ever asked that question, <laughs> but there is a, but there's a, <laughs> there is a sense when people bring up, you know, the, the concept of work of balance, I have always described it for me. It's like, it's a mental balance, you know, and how do I sort of think about the quality of time I have with my family versus maybe the amount of time that I maybe um, prioritize for work or work elements. Um, and I promise like at the end of the day or the end of the year, you know, as you described, sort of looking at it as, as a whole, um, I feel complete and balanced, you know, in terms of my experiences, I'm probably gonna remember more things I did with my children than I, the 60 hour weeks that we have sometimes at work, you know? Um, and so it's about, um, prioritizing from a mental perspective, just as much as a time perspective, I think. And then finally, just to wrap it up, um, you know, what advice do you have for someone who's currently not in sports, but has a passion for the industry and is looking to break into the, into, um, the career maybe later, um, along their path? Yeah, no, I look, it really does come down to what I think anytime you're looking at a job, whether sports or elsewhere, like what about that job is exciting to you, right? What about it is because in sports, a lot of the stuff that you think of as sports, the sort of sex appeal of, oh, I work in sports. I get to go to games. You get to go to games, but you don't get to watch them. You're working at them, right? And so I think it is really important that for people who are looking to work in the industry, that they sort of do their homework and understand what is it about the industry that's compelling to them. 
you know, what part of the industry, like I said, it's incredibly multifaceted. You could be working for a media company, for a team, for a league, for a, a brand. Like there are so many different ways in which you could touch this. What part is interesting to you? Why? What about your background, your experience makes you really well positioned for that? So I, I would take the time to really ask yourself those questions. And yeah. you know what, if you don't have the answer, that's cool. Talk to people, you know, informational interviews. Like I will be paying that. I will be paying my hundred plus phone calls forward for the rest of my career. <laughs> like I, you know, I, you know, it's, I would recommend that, you know, anyone who reaches out have questions, right. Yeah. Have thought it through. Um, but that being said, I am, I am happy to help. And I think that holds for almost everyone I've met in the industry, right? Yes. We all started somewhere. Um, and if you come with genuine interest, thoughtfulness, good questions, like, I want people to succeed. Like I want people who are passionate about this to get those opportunities. And I'm mm -hmm. more than happy to help take the time to answer those questions. So by the time that there's a job opportunity, hopefully that person's, you know, all set to capitalize on it. But it is something where, you know, it's knowing the difference between an informational interview and an actual interview. All, yeah. all interview or all conversations are interviews, right? That's true. They're all interviews. There may not be a job today, but as I mentioned, you know, when you're having those conversations, you don't know if a job's going to be open in the future. You don't know if that person has a friend or a colleague who might have an opening where I finish a conversation I'm like, you know what, that person's awesome. I wish I had a job, but I don't. But hey, this other person might. I'm going to make a phone call. You never know when those things are going to happen. So treat every single conversation you're having as, you know, an opportunity for thoughtful dialogue, respect, and you never know where it's going to go from there. So true. So true. Thank you, Katie, so much for joining us on the podcast. And thank you for being a That's guest. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And that's a wrap on episode 19. Thank you for tuning in. And thank you to Katie for sharing her journey, experiences, and insights with all of us today. If you're not already, be sure to follow Women Blazers on Instagram to stay connected and to tap into the Women Blazers Network. And look forward to the last episode of season one, episode 20, dropping Monday, December 21st, featuring my friend Lillian Majid, Senior Vice President of Diversity Inclusion for the NBA, and a 2020 SPJ Game Changer honoree. Have a great week, everyone.